Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Anastasia Glova. It's a slow week in Washington as everyone celebrates the holidays and rings in the new year. But for those of you listening this week, I'm featuring the best of Cato Daily Podcast. Each day until the new year, tune in for one of Cato's finest previously aired podcast commentaries. Judge Michael Eubanks of the Pearl River County Circuit Court threw out the death sentence of a Mississippi man convicted of killing a police officer in a drug raid five years ago. The man's name is Corey May, and Cato policy analyst Radley Balco has gathered a media storm around his case in the process of researching his study on no-knock raids entitled Overkill, the rise of paramilitary-style police raids in America. Corey May now awaits a new sentencing hearing that will take into consideration other matters raised by May's defense team. Radley offers his comments in today's podcast. What happened on the night of December 26, 2001 that put Corey May on death row? Corey May was at home with his 18-month-old daughter, and when the police broke into his home late at night, and he fired a handgun at the first officer into the door. He fired three times, and one of the bullets got under the officer's bulletproof vest and mortally wounded him. There are lots of questions about the raid. The raid was precipitated based on a tip from a confidential informant who we now know not only wasn't the most upstanding of citizens, but was basically a racist and a bigot. From there, it's also pretty clear that Corey wasn't the target of the raid. He shared a duplex with a man named Jamie Smith, who was actually named in the warrants, whereas Corey wasn't. And Smith actually also had drug charges pending against him from several months earlier. So it's pretty clear that the raid was aimed at Jamie Smith and not Corey May. There was no reason for Corey to think that the police were coming after him. He had no criminal record, and he had, at most, a misdemeanor amount of ash and marijuana in his home. You've spoken with Corey May's family. What kind of a man is he? It's hard for me to say conclusively, obviously, because I don't know him very well. But, you know, it's clear that this is not a criminal. This is not a guy who's a threat to society. At the hearing last week... Actually, one of the witnesses the defense called was Michelle Longino, who's actually the grandmother of the little girl who was in the house that night. And Corey and Chantille Longino, the mother of the child, she sort of moved on now that he's on death row. Uh, but her mother on the stand uh, just gave some really heartbreaking testimony about him. I mean, she really vouched for this guy, talked about how attached he was to the little girl, talked about how he stayed home to take care of her, how he cooked for the family. And she even read a card that he had sent her at Christmas. Apparently, he sends her cards at every holiday that uh, had a lot of people in the courtroom actually in tears. Again, he had no record. He had no behavioral problems. He was a guy who was very attached to his family and a guy who was very attached in particular to this little girl who was in the house at the time of the raid. You know, I met him. He's very shy. He smiles a lot to the point where some people think they may have heard him at the trial because he was on trial for his life. And through a lot of the trial, he had this just sort of natural smile that he wears on his face. You would think that somebody, you know, even an innocent person who had been on death row for a couple of years would be a little hardened by it. But, you know, none of that came out when I met him. He was very gracious and grateful for, you know, all the things that people have done for him who have never met him and just seems like a pretty genuinely good guy. Why are you convinced of Corey May's innocence? May has no witnesses, while the police present at the raid all corroborated the same story. Well, the police didn't all corroborate the same story. They all claim, well, all but one, I guess, claim that there were announcements at the scene, but the only officer who was actually in the building at the time of the raid claims he couldn't hear anything. So, 
there are different versions of events, and some officers have actually given varying details over the last few years about exactly what happened that night. As for Corey's innocence, I mean, I think when you look at a situation like this, you have to sort of go with the most probable explanation uh, of what happened. And to believe the prosecution's theory about what happened that night, you have to believe that this guy who had no criminal record, who had no significant amount of illicit drugs in his home, woke up, heard the police announce themselves, looked out the window, saw that there was a raiding team of police officers approaching his house, decided to take them on with a handgun, waited for them to break open the door, shot and killed one of them, and then immediately surrendered while there were still bullets in his gun. That just is not a plausible series of events to me. I think a much more plausible explanation is that this guy woke up to somebody trying to break into his home, and he was scared. He knew he lived next to a drug pusher, knew that this was a questionable neighborhood, and was probably frightened. And I think that his explanation for what happened tonight is easily the most plausible. Some would say this case smacks of racial injustice. Is there some truth to this claim? Well, I mean, there are a lot of really troubling aspects to this case. When I first started covering this, I was ready to cover it while leaving out the racial components just because I think they're too divisive. But I think at this point they're inescapable. You have a black man who shot a white police officer, and I've been down to Prentice. It's a town where race is not just pervasive, it's suffocating. I mean, it, it permeates just about every aspect of life down there. And you couple that with this racist informant. The guy left a, a 45-second rant on one of the defense attorneys' answering machine that was just loaded with profanity and racial epithets. And you look at the drug war in general, which by any measure disproportionately affects minorities and African Americans in particular. So I really tried to avoid the race issue uh, when writing about this case. But I think that particular recent events, but just the accumulation of what's happened since I first started covering it, I think makes covering the race part inescapable. How do you feel about Corey May's representation in court? Well, at trial, he unfortunately had a less-than-stellar lawyer, I guess is a charitable way of putting it. His family originally was going to go with the public defender and then sort of recoiled at the thought of putting his fate in the hands of a public defender, which, as it turns out, was a mistake because the public defender down there is very good. They instead uh, hired a, a woman in Jackson named Rhonda Cooper, who I think any lawyer who looks at her performance would find some pretty severe inadequacies. After he was convicted, Corey's family fired Miss Cooper and went back to the public defender down there, a guy named Bob Evans, who's a really stellar trial lawyer. Interestingly, last December, when I first started writing about this case, and Evans had just started work on Corey's appeal, the mayor of Prentice came to Mr. Evans and basically told him that the town's alderman had expressed concern about his uh, representing Corey on appeal and that his job security might rest on he dropping the case. And Evans is a stand-up guy, and he basically told them to go away. And sure enough, in March, Evans was fired as the public defender in Prentice. And according to Evans, Mayor Dumas specifically told him that the reason he was fired was for representing Corey. I think that speaks volumes about this town's commitment to giving Corey a fair shake at justice. The fact that they would fire the man whose job it is to represent Corey for representing him, I think, really shows that they have something to hide here. After I started writing about the case, 
Also, uh, in late March, a big firm here in D.C., Covington and Burling, actually, I guess that was in February, agreed to take the case, and they're now representing him, and they've been phenomenal. I mean, they sent investigators down to Mississippi. They've hired their own experts. They had these really amazing computer animations at trials sort of showing how things could have happened the way Corey said they did. So right now, I think his legal representation is really top-notch. Unfortunately, I think it was less than adequate at trial, which is why we are where we are today. What do you think will happen to the May case from here? Well, right now, we're waiting on the judge to rule on the remaining defense motions and defense arguments. He could do one of three things. He could uphold the verdict, in which case we would just move straight to the sentencing trial. He has already ordered a new sentencing trial. He could actually enter a not guilty verdict in spite of what the jury said. And I think there's actually good reason for him to do that. That's a pretty extraordinary step in the criminal justice system, but it is a step a judge can take. And I think the Covington team in particular made a strong case that the governing case law on this requires that the judge do that. The other thing the judge could do, and I think what I personally think is most likely at this point, although I hate to speak too soon, but uh, he could order a new trial, in which case Corey would get a brand new trial. Everything would start from scratch. And this time it would most likely be in Jefferson Davis County where the event actually took place and where the demographics, I think, would be quite a bit more favorable to him. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.